This morning's message uh, will be in 1 Samuel. I, I don't have a particular passage for you to go to this morning. Uh, we will be in 1 Samuel 13 to start, and then we'll be uh, certainly heading to some other passages of Scripture. Really, in this message, I am trusting the fact that at this point you're familiar with the book. We're going to be referencing many of the the accounts that we've spoken of uh, at length in the, in the book of 1 Samuel. And I'm not going to spend much time on them, really more or less just reminding you of what we've said. And in doing so, uh, then bringing your, your hearts to various concepts surrounding them. And as we consider what we did last week, where we finalized the book of, of 1 Samuel, chapters 30 and 31, we compared David's whole tenor of living with, with Saul and uh, as we compared and contrasted them, we saw that difference. We're going to do sort of the same thing this week, but not on that broad level, more on an individual level. We're going to consider some attributes of David and some attributes of Saul. And in doing so, we're going to seek to define the phrase, a man after God's own heart. When you consider this phrase, a man after God's own heart, in a manner of speaking, in the church it has taken on a life of its own. This is one of those phrases that I often come across when I'm door knocking, uh, when I'm speaking to, the, to, to broader evangelical circles. Uh, to some it's a rallying cry that they want to become a man after God's own heart. It's a goal unto which to aspire. Uh, it's what every believing Christian wants to do. We want to have that heart that would reflect the heart of God. To other Christians, um, it's a comfort they console themselves in the fact that David was a man after God's own heart, and yet uh, he was not a perfect man. And so they remember that, that, that uh, it, it's not a, a call unto perfection. For some, it's an excuse. Where they say, David did this, and after all, he was a man after God's own heart. And they use that as kind of an excuse to why they can still feel godly, even though they're doing things they know is wrong. And so this phrase is, is a, a phrase that I'd like us to dwell on a little bit this morning. And I'd like us to, to, to consider what that phrase means. A man after God's own heart. And what our relationship to that phrase should be today. Are you a man, a woman, a child after God's own heart? How does one become a man after God's own heart? What were the characteristics that defined the man after God's own heart? And as I mentioned, in some ways this will be a review. In other ways, uh, certainly it will, will be a fresh perspective as we walk through various accounts of 1 Samuel. So first, let's look at the, the phrase itself. We'll look objectively at the phrase. It came up in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. Samuel is rebuking Saul for conducting a sacrifice on his own rather than waiting for Samuel. If you, re if you recall that circumstance, Samuel uh, it, it has been delayed. He told Saul that he would come within a number of days. Anytime Saul called for him, Samuel has been delayed. Saul is about ready to go to the battle. He's, he's distraught that the sacrifice could not have been done or may not be done before the battle commences. So he does the sacrifice himself. Now, recall that God had given the privilege of the priesthood specifically to the tribe of Levi. 
Saul was told to wait for Samuel, but in his lack of faith and in his personal ambition, he counted the act of sacrificing an animal to God of more worth than obeying God. So the act of sacrificing the animal, even though it was outside of the way God said to do it, was of more importance to, to Saul than waiting for Samuel and doing it God's way. In doing so, Saul reflected a completely carnal mindset, a carnal understanding of God's expectations. You know, religious devotion is not a bad thing. It never has been a bad thing. It never will be a bad thing. Uh, you talk to someone and they say, you know, I hate religion. And, and, and I, I understand that. And I've told people before when I'm witnessing to them, you know what? I, I get you. Religion, religion can be a, a bad thing. People say, look how many wars have been started over religion. Absolutely. Many wars have been started over religion. Religion in and of itself is not a good thing, but religion in and of itself is not a bad thing either. Religion cannot, it never has been, and it never will be a means by which we please God. However, religion is designed or can function well as a framework to facilitate a heart of humility and obedience unto God. It can give us a framework within which to operate properly. In Saul's day, a man who desired to reflect humble obedience to God did so by submitting himself to the sacrificial system of the law. With the exception of the atonement sacrifice, where blood was absolutely essential, it wasn't the sacrifices themselves that incurred any of God's favor, but rather the fact that the man or woman came to God, God's way, seeking a proper relationship with him. And such has always been the case with religion, even unto this day. It's not nearly as much about what we are doing as it is about the heart behind it. Religion cannot be a source of God's grace or God's favor. It's not, it's not intended to function that way. But what religion can provide, when seen properly, is a framework that helps us express to God His worth in a proper manner. So whether that's faithful church attendance, or whether that's uh, faithful giving, or whether that's uh, daily Bible reading and prayer, uh, whether it's, it's the things that we do religiously within the service, the things that we've chosen to do, we choose to do a scripture reading, we choose to stand for that scripture reading, we choose to do scripture memory, we choose to stand for that scripture memory. It wouldn't inherently be wrong for us not to stand, would it? Pastor, why do you have a standing and sitting? Well, uh, the reason why we stand for it is, is because it's a, another opportunity for us to reflect as we read the scriptures and as we memorize the scriptures, as we focus on the scriptures. When, when you stand for something, it shows it respect, right? When you, when, when, when you stand, when a person enters the room, you think of in the military, when an officer enters the room and people stand, it is, it is a sign of respect, when people are clapping and they give a standing ovation, right? A standing ovation is a sign of respect or of honor to that person. And so, uh, as we look in the Bible, there were times, particularly we look in the book of Nehemiah, where the people stood all day as they listened to the Word of God preached. They refused to sit down because they wanted to honor the Word of God. And so we, we, we seek to, in, in just some little way, reflect a little extra honor upon the Word of God. By standing when we read it. Now that being said, I read a whole lot more scripture when I'm preaching than we do during scripture reading usually, right? But I don't, I don't have you standing for that. Say, Pastor, is that an inconsistency? Well, it would be 
if we were doing something religiously, right? If we were, if we were saying you have to stand for Scripture, and, and that if you don't, God is upset with you or unhappy with you, well, then we would be reflecting some, some level of hypocrisy. But that's not what we're doing. We are, we are simply using that time in our service as an avenue to teach something about respect for the Word of God by asking folks to stand up for it. So these religious actions, they do not in themselves have any particular merit with God. But what they can do for us is assist us by standardizing, by formalizing practices that keep us doing right, that draw our minds toward the right, and that help us express our love to God properly. If you stand to read the scriptures with disregard in your heart for the scriptures, the standing isn't going to do a thing for you. But if you stand as a reflection of your heart, well then that can be a helpful exercise. If every time I ask you, please stand for the reading of God's word, that is a cue to you that I need to stand not just in legs but in heart, then it's, it's functioned. It has served to help remind you of something. It's served to help you have the proper mindset. And that's what religion is intended to do. It's intended to be that framework within which we operate to help us maintain a proper mindset and to guide us into proper obedience and worship. When we seek religious acts outside of God's design, however, when we, when we seek His, his, his actions apart from our proper motives, it's just as wrong as anything else. Such was the case in Saul's day. He did the religious act. He did the sacrifice. But the fact that he willingly did it in a way that was opposed to God's command reveals a heart of rebellion which tainted any attempt for him to incur God's favor for the battle. And it is, it is soon after this um, that Samuel arrives on the scene. As a matter of fact, it says immediately after he had finished doing the sacrifice, Samuel arrives on the scene. And we read this in verses 12 and 13. Therefore said I, and this is Saul as he's explaining what's going on here. He said, Therefore said I, the Philistines will come down upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself therefore and offered a burnt offering, and Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which, the, which he commanded thee. For now would, would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. And following that very stern rebuke that Samuel gives, remember, he, said, he says this in verse 14. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. This is the only time in 1 Samuel, and even in the Old Testament, where we see that phrase, a man after God's own heart. In this context, it's more a description of, of what he is not, of what Saul is not, than what he is, right? It's more of a, of a contrast that, that you are not a man after God's own heart. And we see that contrast. God sought a man after his own heart, and Saul was not it. Now, as this is the only instance of the phrase in the Old Testament, we actually don't learn explicitly that David is the fulfillment of this seeking 
until we get into the New Testament. Now, we assume that because God chooses David next, and we see the contrast between David and Saul all throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we assume that David's the man, and, and you'd be right in that assumption. But we don't actually explicitly see David being called a man after God's own heart until we receive the confirmation of this in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is on his first missionary journey and he's in Antioch of Pisidia. And as he's in Antioch of Pisidia, he is preaching to the Jews that are there. And he is specifically focusing in on the Jewish believers. And as he does so, he begins to preach to them Jesus Christ. And as he would regularly do when he preached Jesus Christ to a Jewish group, he used the Old Testament extensively to prove that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And in... in a heavy emphasis would be placed on Jesus being the son of David. And we see the promise that Messiah would come from the lineage of David in 2 Samuel 7. Tonight we're starting the book sermon in 2 Samuel. And uh, there are some outlines on the back table if you want an outline for 2 Samuel. So we'll be beginning in 2 Samuel in the evening service tonight. But in, in the context of Paul preaching about David and about Jesus, he says this in Acts 13.22. He says, And when he, that Saul, had removed, um, excuse me, and when God had removed him, Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart which shall fulfill all my will. So here's our positive identification of David as the man after God's own heart. And also, in many ways, a positive definition of what it means to be a man after God's own heart. He says, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. And so David becomes our case study. He becomes our case study for what it means to be a man after God's own heart because he's explicitly stated in Scripture to be this kind of a man. So we're going to study David, but we're also going to take it one step further. As we kind of did last week in the broader sense, we're going to dig down a little closer this week, and we're going to do a compare and a contrast between a few accounts of David and Saul and see where this concept of the man after God's own heart comes from. We're going to study the positive attributes of David that made him a man after God's own heart, and compare them with the negative attributes of Saul, which invalidated him from being a man after God's own heart. And Lord willing, it will help us greatly this morning understand what this phrase means as we seek to apply it to our hearts. So we're going to use this table this morning, and uh, I trust that it's fairly readable. should have made that a little bit bigger. But we're going to use this table to understand these differences. So the first contrast that we find between David and Saul that I'd like to highlight this morning is that of David's humility as opposed to Saul's pride. David's humility as opposed to Saul's pride. What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Well, it means to be humble. What does it mean to be humble? Let's talk about that this morning. Humility in the life of a man is a natural outworking of his understanding of himself in relation to something greater than himself. A humble man does not need to be a man of limited means or of limited power or of limited resources. A humble man does not necessarily have to be a poor man or have to be an unintelligent man. A rich man can be humble. A powerful man can be humble. Humility is not a function of a man's status in society. It is a function of a man's perspective on himself. Okay? Humility is not a function of a man's status 
standing am amongst others, it is a function of his perspective on himself. David was a man of incredible strength in more ways than one. He was described very early in his life. Remember when Saul had the trouble, the spirit that was troubling him and, and they sought for a man to, to comfort him? And a servant said, I know a man, he's a man of Benjamin, he's a man of the son of Jesse, and he was called a man cunning and playing, a mighty valiant man, a man of war, and prudent in manners, and a comely person. He says, look, this guy is a good fighter, he's a good player, and he's a good looking guy. So David had a lot going for him physically. From a physical perspective, he, had, he, he, he was, he was a, a, a worthy guy. He was, he was a man's man. He was a, a strong man. He was a good-looking man. He was a, a capable man. And then what does he do? He defeats Goliath, right? And Goliath is not just a enemy. He is the Philistines' champion. He's the champion of a nation that is much, much stronger than Israel. He's, he's the champion of the champions, okay? And, and David defeats him. He was the king's son-in-law, right? So he's got that standing. He marries Michael. He becomes the king's son-in-law. He's a pretty important man. He's the captain of the host. Uh, th this, this man is a popular man. He's a capable man. And uh, as we consider all of these, these elements of David, yet when he was confronted with a man who was far less than what he was, the man named Saul, a man who was nowhere near as accomplished as him, had nowhere near his character, he bowed himself to the ground and he, he did reverence. When confronted with the wisdom of the woman Abigail, when he was ready to kill Nabal, when confronted with her wisdom, he humbled himself before the wisdom. Various great men in various times in history have had any number of reasons for being humble. A great man might be humble because he recognizes how small he is when he looks at the universe that's around him. Maybe he recognizes that we're just a very, very, very small speck and a very, very big creation, and that humbles him. And so he says, I'm not going to become too big because look at, look at how small I am when compared to the universe around me. A man might be humbled when he compares himself to great men of years gone by. There are men that are humble because they, they look at the men who have gone by and they say, well, I might be this and I might have done this, but I have nowhere near the character of, of the men who have gone before me. But David, as a man after God's own heart, the difference between just a humble man and humility that defined him as a man after God's own heart was that his humility came from who he saw himself in light of who God is. That regardless of how great he became, that regardless of how capable he was, that regardless of all the good things that he could do, he knew that in, in relation to a holy God, he was nothing. And thus anything that he was was nothing more than an extension of all that God had given him and all that God had made him. So he was a humble man. Humility as a function of his perspective. And David saw himself in light of who God is. And so he was humble. Saul, on the other hand, was a man who saw himself in light of his own standing. His pride grew as his power grew, as his standing grew. And so we see that he always, even in the days where he didn't see himself as much... He was still gauging himself by a carnal standard. 
When we first encountered Saul, he was a man of relative humility because he was a man of little consequence. When Samuel tells Saul that, that Saul was the desire of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 9, when Saul comes to anoint, when Samuel comes to anoint Saul king, I'm getting their names. I was, I was so happy when, when Samuel got off the scene because I didn't have to fight with those two names anymore. When Samuel came to anoint Saul, and Samuel said, you are the desire of all Israel. Saul, if you recall, in 1 Samuel 9.21 said this, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou to me? He says, are, are you talking to me? Me? My family's the smallest in Benjamin? Benjamin's the smallest in Israel? And, and you're, you're saying this to me? Now, now from a initial perspective, there's some humility there, right? He recognizes who he is in perspective. He says, I'm, I'm nothing. My family's nothing. Our tribe is tiny. We, we have no consequence here. What do you mean I'm going to be king? And he's got a humility, but it's a, it's a humility that's based upon his perception of himself in relation to others, not in relation to God. And this is where that breaks down. See, Saul grew in social standing, didn't he? He became king. He became a warrior. He became a leader. He became an authority. And as he grew in strength and as he grew in authority, he also grew in pride. He began to look around and say, hey, look, there is no one that has more authority than me in Israel. There is no one that, that can be ascribed the victories in battle but me. And so now, as he's looking at the context of himself, he says, I am a great man. And instead of humbling himself before God and saying, no, 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 wait, regardless of how great I've become, there's still God. He said, no, I have become great. He became proud. He began to see himself as something special. Self-righteous, self-sufficient. Rather than a conduit through whom God could bless the nation, he saw himself as the blessing to the nation. 1 Samuel 9, Saul says, Who am I that you would say this to me and, and anoint me to be king? Six chapters later, 1 Samuel 15, Samuel's rebuking Saul again and he says this in verse 17, when thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? Samuel said, there was a time where you were little in your own eyes, but that's not anymore, Saul. You're now something special in your own eyes. You've lost humility. But what he never, though he went from humility to pride in the physical sense, you know what he never had? He never had that perspective. He never saw himself in light of who God is. He never saw himself in light of God's greatness, only in light of his own accomplishments and power. And, his accomplish, and as his accomplishments and power increased, his perception of himself grew with it. David, as a man after God's own heart, had a proper view of himself. He saw himself in light of who God is. Saul did not. You want to be a man after God's own heart? You want to be a woman after God's own heart? You want to be a child after God's own heart? See yourself in light of who God is. See yourself for who you are when compared with who God is. And that will give you a framework of humility that will, will aid you to becoming that man after God's own heart. 
So first, we see that David was a man of humility. Saul was a man of pride. Second, David was a man of complete obedience as opposed to Saul, who was a man, and I'm going to use this term, we'll we'll talk about it again uh, as we get toward the end of this slide, but he was a man of qualified obedience. He was a man of qualified obedience. To understand this, we need to look no farther than than the way that, that David treated Saul, right? David was a man of complete obedience. On two distinct occasions, we recall, David had the opportunity to kill Saul, to, to take his authority away, to take Saul's authority away, to kill Saul, to exercise power over him. On each of these occasions, Saul was doing wrong. He was attempting to hunt down David in David's innocence. On each of these occasions, the men that were with David compelled him to strike down his enemy so that they could stop running. But David would not do it. In the cave of Engedi in 1 Samuel 24, David cut off the hem of Saul's garment, but he didn't kill him. On the hill of Hakalah in 1 Samuel 26, David stands over a sleeping Saul and rather than killing him, he takes his spear and he takes a cruise of water and he leaves. In each of these instances, David refused to kill Saul. And why? It's not because this was the most physically advantageous thing for David. Certainly. In 1 Samuel 24 verse 6, David said, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. He says, God forbid that I should do this because he's the Lord's anointed. In 1 Samuel 26, 9, he says the same thing. He says um, to the men that were with him, destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? See, David recognized that his actions were bigger than just his circumstances. David recognized that his actions were more than just the material circumstances that were set before him. David acted on obedience, knowing that his obedience would lead to his spiritual advantage and thus his physical advantage in the Lord. He didn't see himself as being answerable only to himself. Well, if I kill Saul, then I become king and no one can hold me accountable for what I did because I'm the most powerful man in the land, so I can kill him with impunity. David didn't see it that way because he saw that there's someone above him. In the same way that he recognized that God is higher than him, so it made him humble, he recognized that God has authority over him and so it made him obedient. That David was answerable to God for his actions. And when a man sees himself as answerable for his actions, it changes the way he acts, doesn't he? It changes the way a man acts if he's answerable for his actions. When I was uh, working down at Pensacola before my wife and I moved up here, we managed, uh, she, she was the manager and I, I helped her manage the um, sports complex down at, at the school that we worked at. And as she managed the sports complex and I helped her do so, there were many um, students that we had that worked for us. And one of the the lessons that um, we had to learn as managers is that you can't expect what you don't inspect, right? 
that if you don't check up on people, then they're not going to do as good a job as if you have accountability put in place. And this is just human nature. Even in a setting where we were at a Christian college and, and we were working with young people and we sought people with high character to work in our area uh, and we, we found people with high character to work in our area. And we were so thankful for those that, that worked for us and they, they did have high character. But I'll tell you, even people with high character, their actions change when they know they're going to be held accountable, don't they? You've seen it in your children, right? You've seen how just telling your children they're going to be held accountable changes perhaps the speed with which they do it, perhaps how well they do something. When we know that we're going to be held accountable, we act differently. See, here's the thing with the man after God's own heart. The man after God's own heart recognizes that he's accountable to God. That even if you're in a dark room and nobody else is around, God sees you. That even, when there's, that even if there's no one higher than you in your family, dads, that even if there's no one above you in authority in your family, so that no one could come to you and no one could, could give you um, a punishment or, or, or could, could speak against what you are doing, you know that there's a God in heaven who does see you and who is going to hold you accountable. And this was David. David recognized that he was accountable to someone and so he obeyed what he knew God wanted, not what the circum... He, he didn't just do what circumstances dictated. Saul, however, was not this way. David reflects complete obedience, unqualified obedience, in his choice not to kill Saul. Interestingly enough, Saul reflects the exact opposite in his choice not to kill a man. Do you remember when, when Saul chose not to kill Agag, king of the Amalekites? And he, after God had told him to destroy everyone, all of the Amalekites, he, he withheld the best of the sheep and the oxen and the best of the goods, and he didn't kill the king? We find this in 1 Samuel 15. Saul has been commanded to destroy them all. He does not do so. Verse 9 says, But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them, because everything, uh, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. Saul knew God's command. He knew explicitly what God wanted him to do. Even more explicitly, we should say, than David did. I mean, Samuel came to Saul and said, kill everything. This is God's command. We never read scripture where the Bible says explicitly, David, don't touch the Lord's anointed. And yet Saul, having this explicit command, stopped short of obedience. And he stopped obeying when he perceived his obedience fell outside of his best interests. Certainly Saul and the people would destroy that which was refuse and that which was, which was junky. Certainly they would destroy the worthless. But when it came to the best, when it came to the stuff that, that, that could benefit them, when it came to the way that he could glorify himself over this other king, he spared them. Saul was willing to obey to the extent that he perceived his obedience would be to his benefit. But when he stopped seeing his obedience as beneficial to him, when confronted with situation that seemed to oppose his advantage, he did things his way rather than God's way. He's the king. He can do that. 
Now, those of us who know what obedience is, obedience is doing what you're told to do, when you're told to do it, with a right heart attitude. That's the definition we teach our children. Obedience is doing what you're told to do, when you're told to do it, with a right heart attitude. That means if you do it, but you're rolling your eyes and grumbling against your parents, you didn't obey. You did it, but you didn't obey. That means if you, if you were told to do it now and you do it later, you got around to it, but, but that's not true obedience. Obedience is doing what you're told to do when you're told to do it with a right heart attitude. And if that's the case, then it's kind of a misnomer to say that Saul had qualified obedience, right? You, you never actually quit a bad habit if you return to it. So too, you've never really obeyed if you haven't obeyed completely. Partial obedience isn't obedience at all. So we could rightly rewrite this statement to say that David obeyed and Saul did not, but, but I wanted to put it this way to, to give you that man perspective, right? Because he, he did go along with God until it became inconvenient. He did go along with God until going along with God bothered him. He did go along with God until going along with God conflicted with what he wanted. And so, from a man's perspective, he sort of obeyed. From God's perspective, he didn't. So, David was a man of humility. Saul was a man of pride. David was a man of complete obedience. From Saul's perspective, he was a man of qualified obedience. Third, David was a, a faith-oriented man. A man of faith-oriented action. Saul was a man of sight-oriented action. At this point, I hope you can see the trend. A central concept which all of these points revolve around, which is carnality and spirituality. David was a man whose actions weren't just compelled by obedience, but also by, by great faith. It's one thing to do what God tells you. It's another thing to trust everything that God says. The man after God's own heart doesn't really see the difference, however, between what God tells you to do and who God is and what He expects. For this example, we reference what is probably the most well-known event in David's life, his confrontation with Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Goliath was a huge obstacle, literally and figuratively. I don't think that there would be anyone in this room who would argue about the fact that Goliath posed a tremendous obstacle, a faith obstacle, a physical obstacle. He was a large man, he was a strong man, he was a capable man, and he was defying Israel. But as David heard the voice of Goliath defy Israel and the God of Israel, his response in 1 Samuel 17 verse 26 was this, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away his, the reproach of it from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David doesn't see the man's size. David doesn't see his strength. David doesn't see his military accomplishment. David doesn't look at him and say, well, I think someone should do something, but I think we need a bigger army. He said, who's this man to, to defy the armies of the living God? Who's this man to shake his fist at God? Doesn't he know who he's dealing with? Doesn't he know he's dealing with the God of the universe? Do you see how, again, David's seeing God for who he is and sees everyone in light of who God is? 
David doesn't consider the man as physically imposing. He considers this man who has put himself on the wrong side of the Almighty God. And, and, and it doesn't matter if you're one foot tall or ten foot tall. If you put yourself opposite God, spiritually speaking, you're in a bad place. It doesn't matter if you're a, a dollar heir or a millionaire. If you have put yourself on the wrong side of God, you are, you are in a bad place. And that's what David saw. Here's a man, he's big, he's strong, he's capable, he has an army behind him, but he has just put himself in a very bad place because he has defied the living God. David volunteers to fight Goliath. And be, uh, besought, uh, he's brought before Saul, and, and he beseeches Saul that he'd be able to do this. Saul says, yeah, you can do this, uh, but can you do this? <laughs> <laughs> and this is what David tells him in verses 36 and 37 of 1 Samuel 17. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them. David says, there was a time where a lion came up against my sheep. God gave me victory over the lion. There was a time where a bear came up against my sheep. God gave me victory over the bear. And this Philistine will be just as them. He says... This uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. See, it's not, it's not an issue of capability with David. It's not an issue of power. It's not an issue of prestige. It's not an issue of, of money. It's not an issue of, of authority. David knew that if God would so choose, he could stand against any number of foe, Any might, any army, any man. And he didn't have to worry about the technical skill comparison. He shared the mindset of his best friend Jonathan, who if we recall in 1 Samuel 14.6, right before he and his armor bearer went and took out a Philistine garrison, said, there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And so David went out and he confronted Goliath in confidence. Not his own confidence, not confidence that he could do it, not confidence that he was strong enough, but confidence that God could do it through him. He was confident in God's will and God's faithfulness. Saul was not this way, was he? Saul saw life by the numbers. He measured life on a ruler of advantage and disadvantage. As we introduced the concept of being a man after God's own heart, we did so through Samuel's rebuke of Saul, following Saul's decision to, to give this sacrifice unto the Lord apart from Samuel. We discussed how Saul was trusting in religious devotion rather than the God behind the religion as a means uh, by which to win the battle. Saul had elevated re religion to the, to the level of God himself, and so he made religion an idol. But why was it that Saul could see clearly enough to do the sacrifice, to appeal to God for the battle, but he couldn't see clearly enough to do it God's way? Have you ever wondered that? How is it that Saul got so far as to say, I need to do the sacrifice, but he didn't get far enough to say, oh, and by the way, I should probably do it the way God wants me to do it. And, and the reason why he got to the sacrifice, but not to the motive is because he didn't see with eyes of faith. When he saw the sacrifice performed, he saw an action being done and the battle being won. He didn't see an appeal to God and God winning the battle. He saw an action being done and the battle being won. He, he saw a lucky rabbit's foot to rub. 
He saw some sort of physical invocation of, of luck or of ability or of skill. Those who see with eyes of faith know that it wasn't the sacrifice that brought the victory, but the obedient and humble appeal to God to do in the battle what they could not. Right? And the sacrifice was the method. Saul saw the physical effect, but he ignorantly connected the physical effect to the physical action, rather than the physical effect to the spiritual implications of the physical action. The man after God's own heart understands the spiritual implications of the actions we take. The man after God's own heart understands that even if no one sees you sin, God saw you sin. The man after God's own heart recognizes that even if the world around you says what you're doing is foolish and stupid, if you're trusting the Lord and you're doing it according to God's word in fellowship with Him led by the Spirit of God, then you are doing what, what God wants you to do and, and, and He's going to, to bring that to pass. The man after God's own heart understands that God is not limited by human ability, by material circumstances, or by human perception of events. He sees life as an extension of God's bigger plan and has utmost confidence that as he aligns himself with God's plan, God can and will make up for any deficiencies in order to bring about what God sees fit. The man of God is not reckless, but he's confident that God's will is being done and that God can do in him and through him anything that God wills as we walk by faith. Now, these three characteristics are just a small sample of the comparisons and contrasts that can be made between the life of David and the life of Saul. But each leads to this general contrast, as I mentioned already. David lived a life with a spiritual perspective and a spiritual mindset. He was a spiritual man. Saul lived a life from a carnal perspective, earthly and a fleshly perspective, a carnal mindset. He was a carnal man. Saul understood religion. He understood God. He knew that God was there. He knew he had an understanding of, of the religious basis for what he did, but his mind was stuck in the material. And it could not transition. It did not transition to the spiritual. David saw the world through the eyes of the truth claims of God, his prophets and his word, regardless of how those truth claims corresponded to what he saw before his face or what he felt in his heart. Saul saw the world through the eyes of his senses. He was completely carnally driven, carnally motivated. He was motivated by emotion. He was motivated by his senses. If he saw something and it didn't work for him, he said, I've got to find another way. When put in these terms, we cannot help but realize that the difference between David and a Saul, the difference between a man after God's own heart and a man who is not a man after God's own heart is not about a special formula it's not about some transcendent lifestyle. It's the difference between assuming the spiritual mind and assuming the carnal mind. It's the difference between assuming a heart of obedience and, and, and being willing to, to stick to live in disobedience. And, and it's in, in some ways, from an expression perspective, it's that simple. And as we consider this, we apply this morning, I'd like us to consider it within two contexts. As we consider how this touches us, how does a man after God's own heart, how does, it, how does it touch us as believers today? First off, we need to understand this. For, for we who are believers in this room, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, 
Every gospel believer has a heart changed by Christ. Every gospel believer has a heart changed by Christ. When God was calling the nation of Israel back to him in the days of the prophet Jeremiah, he made the promise that one day he would personally take the steps necessary to redeem the nation and to give them the divine capacity to obey him. The promise was made in Jeremiah 31, 31-34, which says this, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them out uh, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although uh, I was an husband to them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Here God prophesies of the day that he would place the law of God into their hearts and forgive all of their sins. Prophesying of, of, to the nation of the salvation that would come the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save them from their sins. And he did so by describing it as a change of heart, right? He said, I will take the law of God and I will write it on on their hearts. I will put it on their inward parts that he would from the inside out give them a capacity to serve him. In Ezekiel 11, God also prophesied of the gospel of Jesus Christ and he said this in, in Ezekiel 11:19. And I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take away the stony heart of their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh. He would repeat the same promise in Ezekiel 36, 26. I won't read it. But he would promise them that he would give them a heart of flesh. He would take away the stony heart and give them a new heart. Now in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Now follow me here. Follow the link. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 the Bible says this. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We memorized that one a little while ago in, in our church. Jesus promised to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, verses 13, excuse me, yeah, it's, it's John 4, it's going to say 14, but it should be 4. John 4, 13 and 14, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. Going back one more chapter, as Jesus talked to Nicodemus, he said this in John 3, 3. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And would continue in verses 16 and 17 to say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, as we trace these verses from Jeremiah to Ezekiel to uh, 2 Corinthians, then back to John, they tell us a very clear picture. That the new heart and the new spirit which God promised in the Old Testament, the heart of flesh which would replace the heart of stone, the law of God which would be written on the heart of man, the new spirit which would be given, this is being born again. 
This is the well of water that's springing up, the internal well of water. This is the new creation that we are made in Christ. And as such, what we need to understand this morning is that we have, as men and women uh, who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, if you have done that this morning, that we have a heart that has been changed by Christ. We have the capacity to be men and women after God's own heart in a way that men like David only dreamed about. We have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us. We are the living realization of all of the spiritual advantages that God promised would one day come to Israel. You have the law of God written on your heart. You have been given that heart of flesh. You have been given that heart of a man. You, you have been given that living water that's in you springing up into eternal life. You have been born again. You have been made a new creation in Christ. David was a man after God's own heart because he believed God's word and obeyed God's word to the extent that he knew it. David was under the law, and when he sinned, he he was held accountable under the law. We are not held accountable under the law. We have been redeemed from the law, Jesus Christ being made a curse for us. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We have the ability to understand the spiritual in a way that no man in the Old Testament did. But more than that, as Jesus is the very word of God in flesh... We cannot be a man after God's own heart if we have not accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. Can we? Jesus Christ is the very foundation of what it means to obey God. And where one has not accepted God's Son and God's Gospel on His terms, he has not accepted God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. So what I want want you to glean from this first point is that you have a heart that is renewed in Christ. You have been given the capacity in Christ to pursue the spiritual. You've been made a new creation. But the second point says this. Every gospel believer will choose whether to assume a spiritual mind or a carnal mind. We, if I can put it this way, we have the heart of Christ and we accept Jesus as our Savior. But will we have the mind of Christ? And that's up to us. Philippians 2 exhorts us to have the mind of Christ. To let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Every day we have the choice in our circumstances whether or not to assume the spiritual mindset or the carnal mindset. Whether to do things God's way by faith or to do things our way, the way we perceive things to be. As a believer, God has made us a new creation. He has given us His Holy Spirit with the direct intent that we would live spiritual lives. That as we assimilate the Word of God into our lives, as we obey it, and then as we walk in the Spirit, led by the Spirit of God, that we can please God and you can be a man after God's own heart. But Paul warns us in the book of Romans that we can, and those who are in the, uh, as those who are in the Spirit by virtue of our salvation still walk in the flesh. You as a believer can still walk in the flesh. Romans 8 verses 6 through 8 tell us, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul here describes the one who has rejected the gospel the one who is in his natural, unbelieving state. 
man who is carnally minded, and he says that his way leads to death, an example that we find clearly in Scripture. The carnal mind works in opposition to God, who asks a man to live by faith. The man who is in the flesh cannot please God. The man who is in the flesh can go to church, but if he's in the flesh, he's walking in rebellion toward God, and he cannot please God. The man who is in the flesh can give his money away, but if he's in the flesh, he's walking in rebellion toward God and cannot please God. But notice the contrast that Paul makes then in verses 9 and 10 of Romans 8. But if ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Those who have obeyed the Spirit of God... Those who have the Spirit of God indwelling, which the Bible says takes place at the moment of salvation, at the moment He's made a new creation in Christ, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, the Bible says. And so, though the body is still afflicted by sin, the Spirit within you is life through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he continues in verses 11 and 12, and he says this, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. So here's the thing. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. They are in the flesh. They can't please God spiritually. They can't please God physically. We who are in the Spirit do please God. We please God because we have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us. But we still live in a dead body. We have a a spirit that's alive, a spirit that has been quickened, but our body is dead. But then Paul says that because we have the Spirit of God that is in us, and that the Spirit of God is not just the Spirit of, of the one who died for us, but the one who rose for us, that because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, He can take our bodies and He can quicken our dead bodies as well. That He can make our bodies alive. In other words, we can and obey Him. So that we are not debtors to the flesh to live after the flesh. That even though we live in a body that is, that, that, that is sinful, we are not debtors to obey it. We can still live in the flesh if we choose. However, notice Paul's warning in verses 13 and 14. For if ye live in, after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Paul tells us that if we persist in sin, having been redeemed from that sin, we engender in ourselves death. Not eternal death in the lake of fires, that's covered by Jesus Christ on the cross for we who have accepted Him. But rather, we work in our lives and in ourselves the spiritual death, the separation from God and from His blessings that led Saul into the miserable existence in which he lived. His anger, his paranoia, his misery. He lost the best years of his life. But when we as believers through the Spirit of God yield to the Spirit of God, therefore killing, putting to death the carnal mind, and we live rather in the spiritual mind, we usher in the divine advantages that come with aligning ourselves with God's way. And how are we doing on that today is the question. Let's compare ourselves to these two men in 1 Samuel. Last week I asked you to compare on a broad level these two men. The direction that their lives took them. This week I ask you to compare these individual characteristics. 
How do you see yourself? Are you a man of humility, a woman of humility, or a man of pride, a woman of pride? Do you see your value as an extension of some material thing? Do, do you connect your value to your looks? Do you connect your value to your position, to your talents, to your accomplishments, to your strength? Are you judging your actions against the actions of others, self-sufficient, self-empowered? Or do you live in humility? Do you see your value as the Bible presents it? That there's nothing that you have that, that is anything in the eyes of God. And yet you have value. Each one of you has value. Not because of your talent or lack of talent. Not because of your looks or lack of looks. Not because of your accomplishments or lack of accomplishments. But because God has ascribed unto you value. So much so that he has purchased you with the precious, priceless blood of his son Jesus Christ. What separates the proud man from the humble man? Do you see yourself in light of who God is? Do you recognize that no matter how big you get on this earth, you, you are a sinner saved by grace? When you find your value in God through Christ, rather than in yourself or in another, you're on your way to humility. And on, on your way to being a man or a woman after God's own heart. Secondly, what are the limits of your obedience to God? Does your obedience have a limit? Are you willing to do it God's way, but only until the point where God's way conflicts with what you understand to be true? Or what you understand to be what you want? Are you willing to follow God's lead, but only with qualifiers? You'll follow God to church, but not to the mission field. You'll follow God into any life He asks, but not into death. You'll give up your possessions, but not your family. You'll obey God when it's convenient, but what about when it's inconvenient? You'll trust God with your money, but maybe not your time, or your time, but not your money. Maybe it's not about yielding the big things. Maybe it's about yielding the, bit, the little things. Are you willing to obey God if God asks you to be marginalized? To stay in the background? To receive no credit? Or to be scorned and hated for your efforts for Him? What are the limits for you? What lines have you drawn and said, Sorry God, that's, that's where I stop. Or do you read in your Bible and say, well, I don't really like what that's telling me. So I'm just going to reinterpret that one. Ignore that one. When does the Spirit of God speak to you, prompt you, and you say no? Speak to that person. But God, that'll be embarrassing. Give up that opportunity. But God, I want that one. Don't, don't do that, but God, I want to do that. Do that, but God, I don't want to do that. At what point do you say no? The man after God's own heart is not, the per not a perfect man, not a perfect woman. But he is a man who has chosen to do it God's way. No matter how great or no matter how small. Humility, obedience, faith. How do you perceive the world around you? 
man after God's own heart sees everything through the lens of God and His Word. This doesn't mean he always gets it right, but he recognizes where God, where, where God fits into the world and where he fits in in relation to God's world. The man after God's own heart is devoted to doing it God's way. The man after God's own heart lives in the context of this world, but operates on a spiritual plane. He doesn't fear man, because God is greater than man. He doesn't fear the future, because he knows God holds the future. He judges every aspect of life against the knowledge of God. He places his loyalty, his trust, and his effort upon those things which are right in God's eyes. No matter what avenue, entertainment, or politics, or money management, or emotions, or language, or modesty, or where you spend your time. He filters everything through the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, and He places His loyalty upon those things which come out clean on the other side. First, is it wrong? Filter it through the Word of God. It comes out clean on the other side. Then, is it what God wants? Ask the Spirit of God. Does it come out on the other side? The man after God's own heart trusts the Word of God and the Spirit of God above what he sees and what he understands as the very foundation for how he lives and and what he trusts. So in reality, it comes down to this as we close. Are you spiritually minded or carnally minded? Romans and 1 Corinthians teach us quite plainly that, that you can be either. Philippians exhorts us to be spiritually minded, which means you must be able to be carnally minded as a Christian. You can be carnally minded. You can live in the Spirit, but not walk in the Spirit. You can wallow in the mire of, of, of personal choices. Sinful choices or, or just personal choices that are contrary to the will of God for you. Carnal perspectives. Even though you know the Gospel and love God. But we don't need to have a carnal mind because you've been given a new heart in Christ. And when we... When we do have a carnal mind, we foster spiritual death. Just as Saul lived a legacy of spiritually destructive choices, leading to his ultimate physical demise, so too can we. So what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? It doesn't mean perfection or some transcendent method of living available only to a few. It's not an extension of your age To be a man after God's own heart is to be who we are in Christ. To assume the mind of Christ. To have a spiritual mind and to reject the carnal. To live in the humility that we're called to assume. To live in the obedience that God has asked us to live in. To live with eyes of faith and not to walk by sight. And this is the legacy of David. It's the legacy in many ways of Jonathan as well. David was a man who lived as a man after God's own heart. He lived a man who, who truly obeyed. Who, who had real legitimate humility. Who saw through the eyes of faith. And if that's you, then it can rightly be said as well that you are a man, a woman, after God's own heart. And if, and if that's not you, it can be. This title is not just for preachers or transcendent laymen. May God help each one of us to become the man, the woman, after God's own heart that he would have us to be. Let's pray.
Lord, I, I pray that as your word of, the Word of God went forth and as we sought to connect some of these dots between David and Saul and, and again through contrast understanding the, the dynamics of how to live our lives before you, Father, may your Holy Spirit please guide us into truth. I don't pretend to know the hearts of, of the people in this room. I see fruit. I see actions. I, I don't know their heart. They don't know my heart. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would pinpoint in each of our hearts areas of our lives where we need to conform them to you. Whether it's a sin issue or just a, a lawful but not expedient issue, a good, better, best, may every single one of us find in you that spiritual success that you have made available through the death of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.